Welcome to the Podcrastinators, bringing you a mixture of comedy, social and political commentary from New Zealand and around the globe. In other words, the show that's meant to make sense of everything, but quite often doesn't. Hello, I'm Darren Lees, a globally experienced businessman, politically to the right, stand-up comedian, comedy writer, and of course, podcast presenter. And I'm Matt Danaher. I'm an amateur writer, traveler, podcaster, and Instagram influencer, and professional union organizer and socialist who likes to be optimistic about a future. Welcome to Podcrastinators Season 2, Episode 8. No, um, it's Episode 9. It fucking isn't. I've just checked that James Malcolm wants to fuck off and stop doing that shit. <laughs> Meaning. He fucks me up and tries to fuck me up every week and then, he, then I have to try and do it again. And, um, and then I fuck it up a second time and can't do it for a second time, so... Come on, He's you'll be prick. fine. You're a prick. Unionist prick. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Podcrastinators Season 2, Episode 8. And this week, we have the pleasure to be joined by someone born in the UK, trained as an actor and jazz singer before completing a BA and Master's in screenwriting. She then spent 10 years working across TV story rooms in unions, charities and art festivals focused on increasing diversity and representation. She then emigrated to Auckland two and a half years ago, where she works as a stage and screenwriter, director, and a speech and drama teacher. She then went on to start performing stand-up comedy in March 2020, where she has been getting rave reviews ever since she came on the scene. Welcome to the show, Jess Karamjeet. Wow. Yay. <laughs> Welcome, Jess. Um, thanks for having me guys well thanks for coming on we really appreciate it and uh do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and how why you're in new zealand yeah sure um like a lot of brits around my age i think uh, i ended up in australia first on a working holiday visa um i actually i worked in tv and one of my big goals was to travel but to do it in a way that sort of hid uh, that from my family so I told them I was going to try and work in TV uh, and to go work on Neighbours which was my favorite show when I was a kid and I'd watch it with my mum and uh, yeah I ended up spending a year in Melbourne and then I came to Auckland just on a, a visa for about six weeks loved it and then decided to come back about a year later when my holiday visa had ended in Oz uh, and yeah, one of my colleagues at Neighbours said, go check out New Zealand and told me about Shortland Street. And yeah, I did a, a little stint on Shorty about two years ago. Uh, and then, yeah, I've just been working here ever since. And that, that's pretty much it. That brings us up to today with COVID all in those considerations. Yeah. Yeah, of course, because Darren said you started stand up in March 2020. So did you start like doing a few Zoom gigs or did you go straight into live gigs? Was it between lockdowns? I've, I've it was. That. So I did the New Zealand Comedy School mm. and we were between January and March 2020. And so our grad gig was, oh, I think it was the 2nd of March. And then obviously we went into lockdown really soon after. So I had, I think I had two gigs maybe. Uh, before lockdown and then I did bits and bobs like the comedy challenge the lockdown videos that we could mm -hmm. make that was quite good fun uh, but it was mainly from sort of July onwards that I did a few more gigs 
But I'll be honest, I was really hesitant. I was quite intimidated by not knowing people, by not knowing the bars um, and sort of personal safety issues. So yeah, I had some some family stuff that happened around the end of last year. And so it's only really been since February, mid-February of this year, I'd say, where I actually had a big run-up at, at gigs and I'm kind mm. of getting on lineups a lot more regularly now. So yeah, I've done a surprisingly short number of gigs in this last year to say it's been a year. Uh, but yeah, there's just been so many factors that have stopped me from doing more, I think. Yeah, it feels like you've been around for ages. <laughs> yeah, that's what's so weird because I haven't really been around for ages. It's been it's been four months, you know. It's been I got out of mandatory isolation on the fifteenth of February, and then we went straight into lockdown for two days, and then we had a further week. So, yeah, and then in between that, I've I had three surgeries between lockdown twenty twenty and then the past month as well so my health is something that uh, is a real consideration that kind of doesn't stop me from gigging but it's it's a big factor that that can mm. be a bit of a block so yeah I've been I, I like that you think I've been around for ages that's awesome that means hopefully I'm doing good things yeah or I've got no sense of the passage of time yeah or exactly time is a construct I I'm very much of that mentality now it's what happens when you get old Matt yeah <laughs> so Jess you said about um you know having some anxieties about obviously not knowing other players in the market about some of the locations of the gigs have you had some sort of strategies or how's that kind of work for you that's made you a lot more comfortable or are you still kind of going through that process at the moment yeah it's a funny one I think I've been really lucky to say that I came through the grad school and actually there's a bunch of us who did that course together Amy Bird's one of them and she had a lot of contacts already in the stand-up community from her improv uh, so there's a few of us that are trying to get out to gigs and I think that really helped in the very beginning to to put names to faces but yeah I even remember I did a shout out when I was in quarantine in my hotel room for two weeks and I just posted and said does anyone want to do a writing workshop and by this point I'd I'd met Josh Davies at a gig um, and he was really sweet and said yeah I'll keep you company for a few hours and we had a really good session but I remember Coom messaged me and said send me stuff and we hadn't met at that point and I was so <laughs> nervous I was really freaked out by the idea of sending Matt Coom some videos and that's funny to me now because he's sweet as as anything but it's just so bizarre to think that I would feel intimidated even though I'm you know I'm in my early 30s and he's a little baby there's no reason for me to be intimidated <laughs> but it is that fear that you don't know people you don't know who's going to be on the gig uh, and when you sign up it's just a list of names and a list mm. of strangers but now yeah in, in four months on and off gigging I feel like I've definitely expanded my network a lot more and that's really cool um, and, did, and did you feel more nervous at places like say for instance ding dong to back smaller venues or was it somewhere like the classic where it was a bigger venue bigger audience was there any particular one of those sort of things where you felt more uncomfortable that's really interesting I, I, to reflect 
I I was intimidated by the classic as a venue, but that's because of of the gravitas of it being Auckland's only comedy club. And actually, I kind of swanned into Ding Dong to that weird, dark, dungeony upstairs room and didn't feel that nervous. So in the beginning, I think it was just getting to new locations. That was a big thing for me because obviously I am relatively new to Auckland um, and I don't really go out and get out on the lash very often. So <laughs> yeah, Tabak, for example, was a new place, but once I went there and I met Chester, I think at a, at a raw comedy lineup, he was emceeing and he was so friendly and approachable. Mm. So then it broke down that barrier and I would feel confident signing up for, for his gigs. Um, so yeah, it's a work in process, I think. And it's still evolving because there's still gigs that I've not been to. I think you raise interesting points there though, about how open mics so often. So for those that those of our listeners that don't know and there's also a few producers of open mics that definitely listen to this mm. as well so this is kind of a i suppose a conversation they'll be interested in you're quite right normally you sort of you post in the relative facebook groups you say hey i'm keen to do a gig and then um, you f- generally forget you've posted it or at least i do and then you get added to a m- facebook messenger group mysteriously um you know a week or so later with a load of random people in it is there a way that do you think that producers of open mics could kind of make that process um, kind of more open and do it in a different way that was still convenient for everyone, but would actually, you know, help people to get a better understanding of who's involved or I don't know. I mean, there may not be an answer, but and you, it, it's not your job to come up with the answer necessarily. But <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but uh, I went to a raw talk with Jack Ansett and uh, a couple of others, Itai and uh, a guy from Wellington Patch. And they, one of them, made the really good suggestion of having a gig buddy. So somebody who you feel comfortable gigging with, maybe it's because of transport or maybe it's just because they get your material or they can understand how you can progress. So maybe if bookers were a bit more... um, welcoming to that kind of feedback whereas we could maybe just private message them and say hey these are my kind of gig buddies and it's not a guarantee that you'll both be on the lineup but it's just an added reassurance that there's someone that you know in the beginning certainly that's Um, a really cool idea yeah I mean it just coincidentally the way it happened when I came out of MIQ was I think I was on 15 gigs in a row maybe with Amy Thorne and I hadn't met her before that point but because we were each gig and because we heard our material and we could we, we became friendly you know we're both involved in screenwriting and it was so nice to be able to see her name on a lineup and go oh cool Amy will mm. be there and we've joked about how in that beginning in that beginning scenario we were gig buddies so yeah, maybe that's a, an, an option. Do, do you also think it's the sort of behaviour and welcoming of the actual promoter that really makes that much easier, that they're accessible, that they're, you know, understanding to people's requirements and stuff like that? Yeah, I think it really does come down to the bookers. And a lot of them are really great at, 
posting certainly a code of conduct in that Facebook messenger group as soon as we're signed up uh, and maybe moderating if, if conversation gets a little off topic or has the potential to make people feel uncomfortable. That's another big one. Because And that's the thing. If you're added into a Facebook group with 15 people you don't know and they're bantering, mm. it can feel really isolating because there are private jokes or the references that you don't necessarily get. And that can feel like another barrier to wanting to actually follow through with that gig. So, I mean, it, this is reflecting just on the last few months. But even just the the makeup of that lineup makes such a difference if you can look down and see for me as as a as an Indian woman I look and I can go oh cool there are people who are from diverse backgrounds on this lineup so it means that it's not just going to be back-to-back material that can make me feel a bit intimidated if it is Mm -hmm. just naturally if it's straight white dudes um and I remember going to one of Coombe's gigs and I arrived there and went to the back in Zach's bar and there was a table and it was just surrounded with dudes. And I had the, I had the balls to say, Oh, I didn't know I was coming to a sausage fest today. And then Coombe was blessing me. was so defensive and sort of said, no, 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 Andrew's on her way or whoever's on her way. (laughs) But it was just so interesting to think that someone else might have gone and just sort of hid in the toilets for a little while or approached it really differently. So it's it's having the guts and the courage to say, wait a second, this lineup, this isn't very representative or interesting or diverse. And that's the bottom line. It's it's appealing to the broadest around, sorry, the broadest range of audiences that you can. That's a really good point, because um, I know in the UK, when when I used to go on speak on panels and things like that, there was very we had a very clear a lot of us had a very clear rule that we wouldn't go and speak on all-male panels or all-white panels necessarily um depending on on the themes in the area you were having it on um and uh that did did work it did work in terms of making the people putting the panels on think about who they were putting on yeah it's so interesting especially because we're all from the UK and I think that certainly my background was I was one of the only brown faces in my small town in England and it did feel really isolating and alienating to put my voice forward for things and then as I moved up through my career and I worked with unions and arts festivals and different organizations diversity was just always a given um, because Mm. the UK is so diverse and so sometimes you would have to stretch to get that representation but a lot of the time it was just natural whereas here it feels like you have to consciously make those decisions and those choices. So I think, yeah, it comes down to bookers knowing that and also just just support from each other. Mm. Uh, I was at the the Huey at the Classic last weekend, which, you know, isn't my space to talk about as it's focused on Maori and Pacific uh, barriers to access in comedy, um, but also widening that discussion to POCs. And someone said, I won't gig unless I know who's on the lineup beforehand. I won't say yes to being added into a Facebook group until I know who's going to be there. And I think that's a really kind of revolutionary way to approach gigs, to actually say, no, before you say you want me, I want to say, do I want you? Do I want my voice being part of this mix? Mm. Um, 
so yeah I've kind of thought about trying to challenge that in my own lineup approaches in the last week or so and it went really well I I called a booker and said I'm the only female I became the only POC and I said this this isn't okay and then two more females were on the lineup or you know extending that to non-binary as well so I think it's possible it just means that we're not as likable because <laughs> you're you're challenging the sort of the uh the easy approach exactly but well I don't even know if it's the easy approach I talked to a booker and they were saying it's so hard it's so hard to get the the voices in terms of comedic energy on a mm. lineup and get that to be a good mix and then you're thinking about gender and then you're thinking about sexuality and then you're thinking about the different ethnic makeup of of people as well um and I appreciate it's a huge jigsaw with lots of different moving parts that's an awful analogy um no it's fine jigsaws don't have moving parts jigsaws are real static boring objects no it's a future jigsaw maybe it's a quantum jigsaw oh I'd love that my dad would love that yeah nice (laughs) <laughs> go on Darren sorry Jess do you think it's incumbent on the people performing at the gigs to kind of force the hands probably the wrong word but to challenge the promoters until the promoters get into a rhythm of being able to put on more diverse lineups this might be a surprising answer but but no I don't think it should be I actually think we have, a, as a collective, we have the Guild. And I think the Guild seem to work really positively towards steps for, for pros who are looking at gig rates and, and that kind of thing. But the open mic scene, it feels like we're desperate for just that little bit more guidance and protection to a degree. Um, and so I think, I, I, I really, I would really love to see for example, cultural consultants or some sort of diversity consultants through the guild. I I work part-time. I would happily spend 20 minutes of my week looking through all the signups for a gig and saying, oh, hey, maybe this, 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 and this would work really well together. Um, And maybe, you know, maybe that's an option. Maybe we could get more people involved in making up those lineups. Hmm. Is it also about, because I just know from having only produced one gig so far yeah. um, with, with Darren, um, you know, we did put some real thought into those, all of those things you're talking about, the comedy energy, the voice, gender, yeah. um, diversity, what would work in the community we're putting the gig on and all those kind of things. And it is a lot to think about, but actually I think probably the reason, and, you know, certainly Darren would be offended to be described as woke, um but you know <laughs> it's it also it makes good business sense actually to to think about all of those things right because you want to appeal to exactly as an audience as possible and provide a deliver a quality product and the best way to do that is deliver a product where people feel like they're represented in in the lineup where they're spoken to 100%. by the lineup where they can relate with them and like it's actually is it even that we need, and I mean, I'm not saying that we don't need something like what you're talking about, but could it also be like training for people who produce gigs? Yeah, like without a shadow or without. Something on yeah, why yeah, it's yeah. worth putting the extra effort, if it is even extra effort, into thinking about these things. Yep, yeah, it's, 
it seems really simple to put it like that to have the training but I think the reason why I'd suggest an added outside eye in terms of a diversity consultant Mm. of some description is because we naturally revert back to our status quo okay so I've been involved in training a whole heap of people around these issues and unless you have a constant reminder which is your own lived experience then it's really easy to just to forget it like it, it just is and so I think just a training but also having that sort of constant help in until yeah. it becomes habit until something becomes routine and you don't have to second guess your lineup it just comes naturally that you have representation then yeah I think both things would be really helpful cool I think what's interesting here um is that if we think about the key promoters around the Auckland scene at the moment, most are white males, it would be fair to say. Different age, different age ranges, but white males. Now, obviously, interesting with the Hui, obviously being quite topical for Māori and Pacifica performers, do we need people from those communities to step up and go, actually, we'll take control of our own destiny and we're going to put on some gigs in communities and and that kind of helps break it down a little bit as well it kind of takes away from the stuff of like we've just got all these white guys that are trying to produce gigs would it be great if some female some Murray some Pacifica people stepped up and went actually we're going to do some gigs you know I would have absolutely no problem trying to organize a fully Maori and Pacifica gig However, if I went into the middle of South Auckland and tried to pitch this and, you know, could I be construed as being opportunist or, you know, kind of, you know, does it need more from the communities to step up and do those sort of things as well? Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying. Autonomy is always going to be the key end goal. But what I'd be really careful not to do is to create silos where you've Mm. got only these niche gigs that are appealing to what's deemed to be a niche audience in a different suburb and that not being how how the cbd works or or big gigs that have big paid acts um i think yeah it's 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 not the solution to just put the pressure on those individuals because bottom line people from diverse backgrounds have different barriers to access within comedy already yeah so one of those might be financial okay so then saying to somebody in order for your arts to be relevant or valuable in this country you need to shoulder the burden of those costs uh liaising with that venue all the pernickety stuff to do with producing a gig that rests solely on your shoulders that that's too much that's not that's not it's not fair it's not really acceptable it needs to be uh, uh, certainly if there is funding for that that's a different story if there's training for that it's a different story but just palming the responsibility off I don't think is enough oh, look, um, I, I agree creating silos and I, I'm getting I with the stuff that I've been reading online and some of the stuff that's playing out I, I, I'm getting actually increasingly concerned that's where we could in, inadvertently end up if we're not careful. You yeah, know, I, def- really I definitely think there's 
room for non-binary female nights and, you know, if, uh, potentially, you know, because there's obviously been brown pride nights and stuff. But I, I think the actual um, greatest place to end up is a gig where you've got a mixture of everybody on, right? Rather than people having to feel they have to go over there because that's the only place they feel they can perform or over here because it's the only place they feel they can perform. Yeah, exactly. And ultimately, unless those opportunities are equal, if not greater than the opportunities that are existing, then it's it's not it's not going to work. It's not fair and it's not um, that beneficial. But I think there have been really successful gigs catering to minority people like Honey Trap that I performed at uh, the week before last. That was awesome to to just feel I was performing with the group of my friends, you know, and it hit with the audience and definitely material was resonating in a different way. Same with No Homo uh, that I was on a few weeks back. You know that you're going to feel seen and you'll feel held by that community but it shouldn't just be about those opportunities because they're few and far between. And there's only so many spots for a handful of gigs, a, a monthly gig, for example. So I think expanding that out to, to be the new normal would, mm. would be really key. And to do that, what we've discussed before, training, some sort of advising on, on lineup. Coming back to um, yourself a bit, uh, I don't think we've really talked about why you actually got into stand-up. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I've always written stories, dramas, comedies, and I've always been around comedy as well. I grew up in a household where it was Friday night viewing to watch Red Dwarf or Monty Python or um, a whole range of British and American comedians. So, yeah, my brother was really funny when we were growing up. Uh, my dad had a real wicked sense of humor. And we, my parents just gave me the space to create as well. I grew up performing speech and drama and being in plays and being on stage and feeling really comfortable. And then when I was in my sort of late teens, I decided that writing was definitely the avenue I wanted to pursue. So followed a, a career in screenwriting. And I've been really lucky, like I said, to, to work on soap operas like Neighbours and a, a big British show called Feet that was kind of our version of Friends. Um, and to, to, to get those roles. But actually, whenever I was doing those roles, I would think about representation. I would think about whether it's really the best thing to showcase bisexual erasure or... Um, homophobia or to define that there's a set way for a young woman to behave um and I just I can't not think in those terms it's it's innate because of my experiences growing up so I think comedy was something that uh I I liked but was intimidated by because it's such a male-dominated industry but yeah I remember I was at the 2018 comedy fest in Melbourne and I saw a bunch of shows, some that were really great, some that were on their way to being great. And yeah, one of them was Rose Matafeo. She just blew me away. I was like front row center for her in Melbourne Town Hall. And it felt like she had such a unique, young, original 
voice that was quite self-conscious and that it was okay to be self-conscious that it didn't have to be really glossy and sexually overt or what have you and yeah my colleague as well at Neighbours uh, was an improv and a stand-up performer and I just I just began to get the courage and to talk about it with friends and say I think I'd like to do this and then yeah 2020 January 2020 is when I started with the comedy school and would put myself forward to a few different raw quest things um and I ended up dropping out just because of health reasons I had a couple of surgeries like I mentioned uh, last year but raw was a really great way to get involved in in comedy in Auckland and to get the advice from Tim Bat as well who runs the comedy school that was really awesome but yeah, my the, my reasoning behind comedy, I guess, is that self-expression and to try and be a change maker, to try and use writing and art and creativity to get a different perspective across. So that's always the root of what I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to achieve. Interesting you mentioned Rose Matafeo. I was reading a story recently where she's been potentially touted to be the new Doctor Who. Yes, exactly. And 10 years ago, that would be ridiculous. Which, by the way, as a massive Doctor Who fan, would be yeah. awesome. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You'd be really good at it. Yeah. So comedy inspirations, Jess, who, who, what, what kind of, uh, or which performers kind of were the greatest inspiration to you? Um, I won't lie, I grew up with a lot of straight white dudes who uh, comedically inspired me, like the Pythons. Uh, Billy Connolly, I grew up in a Scottish-Irish household. Um, but then my brother's sense of humour, he's three and a half years older, he was a Chappelle fan and he would get us to watch stuff that was really out there compared to what you'd imagine a sort of twee British household would be. Um, and then, yeah, female comedians that really inspired me there's a woman called Mira Sayal, who is a Punjabi, mm. like yeah. my family. And uh, she was also a children's writer. She wrote Anita and Me, which was my favorite book when I was a kid. And she was in Goodness Gracious Me. And so now we reflect and it's kind of playing into these Indian stereotypes. But ultimately seeing a brown woman be funny on screen and, and that, that, that cast was really eye-opening for me and really cool. She's another potential Doctor Who, actually, in my opinion. Oh, cool. I've always thought oh. she'd be cool. She'd be awesome. Oh, I, I hate to say it, but I think I'm Team Mira. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Rose. I don't um, think Rose listens to us, so I think you might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get away with it. <laughs> it was funny. I was uh, recuperating last year. I was so sick, and I was binge-watching some of Rose's stuff, and I tagged her on Facebook. And then, oh, sorry, not Facebook, Instagram. I tagged her on Instagram. And one of my friends DM'd me and said, oh, my God, do you know Rose because of stand-up? And I was like, uh, no. <laughs> no, I really no, I think really she's don't. been in London since we've been active here. <laughs> yeah, that's the only reason why she's not my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Would you, do you want us, we, we should start something to make that happen. <laughs> maybe let's yeah check. we could use the power of our facebook page to get her attention <laughs> that massive Some sort of hashtag or something yeah yeah that massive powerful machine that is our facebook page 
Yeah. But uh, yeah, I I grew up with loads of comedy inspirations, but a big one as well was Russell Howard, who I was absolutely heartbroken. He did his final Auckland gig the day before I got out of isolation. And it was the most crushing thing that had happened. I went to his first Auckland gig and it was amazing. Sorry. Yeah, he's so good because he always brings it back, like I was saying, to some sort of heart, to some sort of purpose or viewpoint. Mm. He, he's not just doing it for, for the sake of it. So obviously we've now understanding who your inspirations are. How do you get your inspiration to put your material together? And how do you go about developing material? Oh, comedy inspo, regular conversation, or should I say argument in my household at the moment is my boyfriend taking credit for my jokes, <laughs> which... <laughs> I mean, if anyone's seen my set, you might be, you might be on his side. But um, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. This is what's funny to me. I take inspiration from real life. It's the same as if I'm writing a soap opera or a TV screenplay. I'm always going to ground that in realism and trying to make it have heart and to connect with people. And so, even when I'm doing a set about cards against humanity, I'm still trying to think about connecting with people on a deeper level so Mm. you know not playing into stereotypes around my mum being a really sweet little Indian lady I'm going to subvert your expectations and that's kind of what I'm trying to achieve with my comedy and so my inspiration from it is is just from life really so often I'll just make notes from a conversation that's kind of verbatim um a new set that I did a couple of weeks back was around a conversation my partner and I had had in bed after I told him I couldn't sleep because I was sad because my dad passed away six months ago and I've got insomnia. Um, And so you're expecting this sweet story about someone caring for their partner who's grieving. But what I do with that that story and what really happened was something completely out of the box. (laughs) And it's really funny because that's the first piece of material I've done where it's got a groan and that's funny to me because a lot of my stuff is a bit off the wall but the groan was from a minority of people who don't get that grief process and who think that to be respectful to my dad I have to be somber on stage and so yeah I've talked in the last six months about my dad's terminal illness about the fact that he he asked me for help and I play with the the concept of euthanasia because here it's something that's really close to home because we had the referendum but actually what does that mean in real terms so what it means is is funny strange conversations with my dad really dark stuff but I'd argue that the darker we are the more light we create because you can't go through what my family went through in the past six months and not retain that, that humor and that humanity. And that was my dad, you know, this garrulous Scots Irish man who went outside when he was watching the Inbetweeners movie because he thought he was going to die from a heart attack because he was laughing so hard. Um, you know, and yeah, I comedically, I think a big inspiration is Daniel Schloss because Mm. he talks a lot about his, 
sister Josie and he really pushes back on the audience when they do groan and when they do put things onto him that that are kind of their presumption that they know what would offend her or they know what's offensive to people with her condition Um, and he turns around and he says but this is my sister um and that's kind of my approach with stuff about my dad he's he's my dad you know if anyone knows his sense of humor or how important that was it's me um so yeah I'm still pushing through that material I'm gonna stick with it maybe not on the classic stage because I know uh, the head of the classic likes to see the same material delivered each time, but I'm going to play with that outside of that space. Um, yeah. And then you asked about write, the actual writing process. I write just as I would. I do a lot of free writing naturally for work. Mm-hmm. And that's always a good start point. And then I don't tend to write with people, but as I mentioned before, I have had sessions bouncing off people like like Josh Davies. Um, who I don't think I appreciated at the time. Like he was a Billy T nominee. I was getting tips from someone who I think is an absolute legend, yeah, just personally. Um, and yeah, it, but what was funny was he ended up giving me a joke about my dad, really pushing that boundary. And when I delivered it, it didn't sit right with me, and it did uh-huh. make me feel a bit strained, um, just because it didn't align with my creative truth and i think that's really important whenever i'm writing yeah when you're doing so much super personal someone writing for you maybe not experiencing that same personal experience no matter how funny it is if it doesn't quite align with the story exactly um, you probably go damn that's a great joke but it just doesn't kind of feel right or something yeah it was a great joke but it was (laughs) Oh, it would have broke. It would have broken his heart. That's the that was my mm. no point. Mm. And a couple of times, I delivered it, and then immediately I thought, "Oh man, I really wish I hadn't said that." <laughs> um, just because, yeah, I know what would be okay with him and what what wouldn't be. I think, um, and that was what was really funny as well in the penultimate week of us spending time together and he said that I had to get permission before I talked about people in my set (laughs) which arguably (laughs) is just a huge thing for a comic to shoulder yeah Uh, what a burden um but I do try and think about that a lot I I did my no homo set a few weeks back and yes I talk about having a boyfriend within that set even though I'm bisexual and I could kind of feel the energy almost from the crowd being like okay, but now when are you going to talk about a woman? Yeah, yeah. And for me, pulling back from that gig was me reflecting and going, actually, I'm happy with what I delivered because I didn't get permission from my ex-girlfriends to talk about how I dated them in Auckland. And Auckland's a really small place and I really don't want to offend anybody or put anyone in an uncomfortable position and yeah even you know my ex-girlfriend ends up being a colleague of someone else on the lineup you know it's a small world and Auckland's super super small so I think comedically I'll write stuff but I'll always try and reflect on whether it's appropriate or not um just as a side note though I do write and talk about my brother and his wife and their newborn baby a lot um 
Yes, I've seen but they, that. Yeah. they, 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 they can't come to my gigs. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's funny. It's been a, it's been a good evolution, you know, from me being the auntie to a fetus to now being auntie to a little baby. <laughs> that that journey has been really interesting for me creatively. So, yeah, I I try and just stick to that though. I don't want to say things that are going to hurt people or offend people. Ultimately. No, that's right. And I think it all comes down to, I, I've mentioned it a few times on here, but one of the things that really stuck for me about what Neil Thornton said to us during the comedy school was, um, you know, that you don't want anyone to leave the audience feeling worse than when they came in. Yeah. And that's what's so interesting, though, because if I am referencing death, that might ripple into someone's own turmoil or whatever they're experiencing. Um, and that's a risk and I don't mm. want that but then I think every now and again something surprises me um, I had a a woman come up to me after the love lamp gig that I did and thank me and say I really appreciate that set because you're reflecting on your dad who you've just lost and I've just lost my dad and and what you're talking about and laughing through grief is so key and yeah they groaned but but I get it. And yeah, I was, I was almost in tears. It was so touching. Um, so yeah, if, if one person doesn't walk away feeling worse, maybe that's an achievement. No, I reckon. Yeah. That sounds all right. Yeah. yeah. Very, very interesting getting audience feedback, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it is actually, it doesn't happen that often. Sometimes I almost wish it would happen more just to wax the ego a little bit <laughs> i do a few jokes about colonialism and things like that and uh the only time it's ever been criticized by audience members is very very pakiha white posh kiwis mm. or british people saying that's no laughing matter when i'm joking about their ancestors having stolen the land of other people yeah people like you say <laughs> they get really touchy and it's something that they're reflecting on if that is their ancestry. Exactly. Maybe it's, I'm feeling... it's not ours, which is really interesting. People, I think, often hear my voice, arguably don't notice my skin colour, mm. um, especially if I've been a bit sick that day and I'm all pale. And <laughs> and I think they they hear what they deem to be quite a posh British accent or English accent. No part of my DNA is English. The audience are more English than I am, you know, mm. but it's because of my accent that I think I get pegged as being that sort of posh British person that is the furthest from my identity. So that's why I play on those sorts of jokes too. And mm. yeah, I have a bit about the royal family because I'm so far from a royalist that you could imagine. Um, and I work through with the audience about why I'm making those jokes because I think to, in the beginning, they sort of go, oh, you just said an offensive thing about the royal family. And then they sort of go, oh, but it's true. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, yeah, there's not many royalists coming to comedy in Auckland, I don't think. Well, you never know. Oh, to be honest, one of my really good friends is and she boos me every time I do the joke. <laughs> She's Greek. She's Greek. So she really loves Prince Philip. And every time oh, I do goodness. the set, I know she booed Greek. me in the classic. <laughs> He's not even Greek. <laughs> anyway, funny. But so, yeah, uh, audience, um, audience 
feedback's always interesting. Yeah, especially if you ask for it or they just come and offer it. You know, it's the same in the comedy community, right? When you come off stage and someone comes over and starts giving you feedback and you're like, yeah, not really sure that was really what I was looking for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's just such a big no-no, isn't it? Or yeah. even just after the fact, I've had a couple of straight white dudes giving me joke tag ideas. And on the surface they elicit a laugh because they're funny. They're about my race or my sexuality. But then I always have to sort of unpeel it and go, actually, do you understand that if I say that I'm feeding into this stereotype? Mm-hmm. And I, and this is a real conflict for me. I get that comedy relies upon relatability and playing into stereotypes, but that can also be really damaging. And I think comedy can do more than that. I think it's a really lazy attitude to just play into the obvious jokes yes or at least if you're going to do the obvious jokes structure some less obvious stuff around it and then like put the obvious joke yeah. in an extra free laugh thing in the middle and then yeah 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 it's always interesting that and i've spoke to a couple of female comics that have done some material about their relationships and stuff and people have gone up to them gone oh you shouldn't really tell jokes like that because otherwise people think that you want it yeah. Uh, really? <laughs> Is that what? what you read into it? I think that's really interesting in that my material is family orientated. So it's about my mom, yeah. my dad, my family, me, and my boyfriend. And I think that a lot of comedians will do, oh, my boyfriend jokes as a protection so that people don't come in and creep on them after a gig. Yeah. Um, mm. And that's really interesting to me to think, if I didn't do that, would the response be, oh, you just talk about sex or, oh, you just, you know, being really reductive, Um, which is why I just throw the euthanasia stuff in every now and again, you know, keep it interesting. I can talk about death as well. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, but but that's even hack now, you know, referencing... someone who's passed away from a terminal illness oh are you doing the dead dad material it's like i won't swear on this podcast but we all know if yes if i could i would be swearing right now because it's it's ridiculous it's something that's so reductive anyway you can swear as many times as you want on this podcast it is a swear zone for anybody that wants to get partake <laughs> well we all know boys since we came through the new zealand comedy school that we have to keep our swear words towards the end so that they're a better <laughs> punch don't we i think that's what's bizarre to me as well i'm actually a pretty foul-mouthed sweet posh english girl from what people perceive me as you know i grew up in a house where we it, there was just no holds barred and we spoke to each other like animals but it meant that we were this super close family arguably closer than than most because I had self-expression so I think yeah I think people are always surprised surprised when I'm a bit but I am so obviously you've been you know getting some um, you know there's a, a lot of noise around the community about just how great some of your gigs have been and your material and everything like that and now you're moving on to doing some MC work. So how have you found that compared to stand-up? The MC job. Hmm. I feel like 
the handful of times I've done it, I've been thrown in, completely thrown in because the MC's just not feeling it that night. And so I had this thing where I was having to do it on the fly. So it was really bizarre the other week when I had an MC spot that I knew I was going to have for about a week. Um, and unfortunately did, did no prep for it. And it was a mistake because I think emceeing, emceeing is all about saying the right thing, I think. It's mm. about not putting the audience off or being upsetting or inappropriate. And I struggle with my sort of social anxiety filter. I kind of constantly have that fear that I'm going to say the wrong thing in front of a, a large crowd. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a speech and drama teacher and one day... I backed myself into such a corner by saying the wrong thing that it, it was it was just wildly inappropriate. So I I don't want to be doing that. Um, and so yeah, emceeing terrifies me. And I think reflecting on the MC process, we all were at the course with Nick Rado last week, and. Nick is such a relatable guy. He talks about raising his kids. He talks about his beautiful wife. I'm not that relatable. I am a mixed race bisexual with a hidden disability that I don't really like talking about. And my dad passed away six months ago and I'm not allowed to mention that, you know, it's like, it's like, don't mention the war or whatever. And so what do I do? I get up on stage and I feel like I immediately put my foot in it and I have somehow mentioned him and you can feel the sphincters in the room tightening because nobody wants to think about death from an MC. I mean, I think it's different if it's in a stand-up set. But the MC's job is to be, hi, I'm Jess. How are you? Oh, thanks for coming. Um, yeah, I, and I actually think that maybe that's why there are fewer diverse MCs because an MC's job is to be like the glue in the gig that draws everybody through it and brings the audience with them and I think if you're really diverse and really niche it's really hard it's an interesting one isn't it because um sitting here talking as a cis white male um from the UK I wonder whether diversity does prevent you from being relatable or prevent the audience from relating to you so just thinking about the gig we were all on that you MCs last week I mean I think that given the venue um certainly the audience would have there were lgbt people in the audience and always are there um don't know so much about mixed race but definitely um you know it wasn't all white people uh in the audience so i just wonder whether i don't know i don't even know what point i'm trying to make really because it's not for me to say about how you feel at a gig obviously (laughs) no it's interesting i think you're saying jess stop being a little bitch just do more mc gigs it'll be fine maybe maybe, maybe. I am saying, <laughs> no I'm not I'm not saying that but I am saying what I think what I'm trying to say is that for me I mean the reason for me why seeing a diverse lineup is actually important is because I think it's more relatable to more people in the audience and I think I remember going to comedy gigs in 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 the UK in the late 90s um early 2000s and actually stopped going because it was you were guaranteed every comic would be homophobic. Um, 
nine out of eight out of ten comics would be racist, um, and a huge, all of all of the male comics would be sexist. Um, and there's been a huge change in that, and certainly the Auckland comedy scene feels like at least you're not going to get those subject matters so much. And so what I'm saying, I think, is I, I wonder whether maybe it's easy to feel like certain experiences aren't relatable to the audience, when actually they may it might be more appealing to the audience to hear about that sort of stuff, I guess. I don't know. Now I'm talking shit and probably will edit what I just said. No, I, re- I really liked that. I think I will reframe how I spoke very negatively about my emceeing experience. And you can keep that in. It's okay. I, I can backtrack. I think I'm talking about crowd work. Mm. I think I'm talking about the MC making a relatable statement and riffing with people who can then bounce back. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have a lot, a lot of respect for Nick Rado. I mean, he's like New Zealand royalty and he gives us the time of day. I remember my first gig with him and he talked to me about doing seven days work or story work or whatever and joke writing. Um, I don't even want to say, but I will say, however, I found it really interesting when he was doing his MC advice, when he talked about this idea of a, a, a wedding and making a sort of wedding grouping uh, based on two audience members who weren't married and the mm. uncomfortableness of them not being married and him going, okay, well, let's lean into that. Um, I hope it's okay that I'm referencing this. I mean, it was a public gig. Yeah, for uh, sure. And then, so then cut to me two hours later, emceeing in the same venue after he told us this story. And the same thing happened. The couple said, we're not married. And so Nick's advice had been lean into that, play with the awkwardness and kind of run with it. But my brain kicked in and my brain as a 31-year-old woman who probably will never get married, um, and that's not just because my dad can't walk me down the aisle and all that bollocks. (laughs) It's because I think that, I think lots of things, but, but what I think without being too out there is I don't have those expectations of myself. So putting that on an audience member in that split second that doesn't align with like what I want to create and you could push this aside and say, okay, you're just overthinking, just say the fucking joke. But I want to make sure that if I am playing with the crowd, that it's not going to offend and hurt people's feelings. Mm -hmm. And if someone did that to me and my boyfriend and said, well, why aren't you married? That, that would be a bit of a sticky spot for us. And I'm aware that it's a sticky spot for a lot of women and men or whoever you are. So it's it's too much to be honest at the moment to to dig through um so i think i just i will probably step away and regroup my thoughts and regroup crowd work um and come up with my own mm. conversation points mm. that's interesting yeah and i think it becomes that thing doesn't it where we what we go to these classes and we we listen to people's advice and then we take the bits that work for us and we we don't take the bits that don't work for us. Totally, yeah. And so much of what he said did work and felt amazing. I left that gig and went, you know what, by Nick's standards, I did a, you know, he talked about a good MC, a great MC, an excellent MC, I think. 
and I walked away and I sort of was thinking, okay, I was great. I did material. It landed. I created a team atmosphere, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, his advice was brilliant, but it's, it's about what you're trying to create mm. in the moment. And, and it just was a bit sticky for me. And yeah, it probably is a mental health thing. It's having social anxiety and second guessing a lot of, mm-hmm. of what I say and do. Um, yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, I did my first MC gig last night. Yeah, I saw. How did you go? Yeah, it went well. But like you <laughs> say, you interact with an audience member and they give you nothing back. And you're like, this is going nowhere. Like, <laughs> I can't make this funny. I'm going to just do material because I feel awkward now. <laughs> I can't make anything funny out of this. Yeah. I think it's kind of like, so I, I used to be a jazz singer. And to, to improvise jazz, you've got to have such a high level. Oh, God, I sound so obnoxious. <laughs> I'll, I'll reframe it. If you learn guitar like I'm trying to do at the moment, and I am terrible. I bought it a week ago, and I'm trying to learn the chord progressions. That, for me, is doing comedy, being able to play a song you've written and a few bar chords. MCing is improvising around every note on that guitar. Mm. You know, because you've got to think on the fly. It's this innate musicality. And I think you can get there by doing an awful lot of practice. But I'm definitely not there yet. Um, yeah, I mean, to be you, honest, yeah. hats off to both of you, because I have no intention of doing any comedy I'm seeing um, <laughs> for all those reasons. I think it's really hard. It, oh, it is really hard. Yeah. But that I said... Think- if when you air this podcast and I actually have some MC gigs, um, please can all the listeners come along and not look yes. at me like they know I'm terrified. Just look at me like you think I'm the most confident pommy princess in the world. That would be great. I think from my point of view, I think if you've got a full room and people are just up for it, it makes it so much easier than if you've got like half a dozen people and they're like, please don't pick on me. Um, you know that sort of thing so you know what I'm the complete opposite I think I was thrown the other week because it was a full house it was pretty much every bum on a seat and um I yeah I've mentioned earlier about having a hidden disability but I get um one of the many many things I experience is a bit of sensory overload that can be to do with the lights or my perspectives um and perceptions So not being able to see faces in a crowd makes me feel like I can't do as good crowd work. Um, So in gigs where I've emceed and there's been seven people in the crowd, I'd like to say I've probably smashed it. It's just less scary the the fewer people there are. Um, Mm -hmm. But still, go support live comedy. So obviously there's a, there is a growing circle of new and upcoming female and diverse comedians, which is super exciting. But I kind of wanted to ask you a couple of questions. One, here, does it feel to be part of that? And secondly, do you feel that comedy is a safe place still for those type of people? And do they know where to even go if they didn't feel safe? What's, what's your kind of views on those? Yeah, we've touched on it a little bit earlier about the guilds. And coming from unions and activist spaces, I know how important that is to connect with uh, and to feel like you're part of a membership organization. 
I think the girls have so much on their plate from the sexual harassment and misconduct working group that's been going on for the past couple of years and COVID. Um, And I think, yeah, it's just joining those dots for new open micers and to know that there is space or guidance um, and guidelines around gig behavior or what to do if there is anything that arises at a gig. Um, But yeah, it feels awesome to be able to gig with a group of people who are really diverse and that's not to say I don't value my friends like yourselves because we you know we've we've got relationships that span outside of this diverse group but it just feels really it feels like a life raft it feels like you are not alone in a really big sea that can be quite scary um and yeah I just think audiences have a tendency to naturally pigeonhole us that you know we were told at the comedy school that you're judged in that first few seconds of stepping out on stage Mm -hmm. what are you wearing what's your skin color do you look wealthy all these different factors and that's so hard for somebody who is diverse half of the year I look completely like a brown person the other half of the year I kind of just look like a posh girl with a tan who's moaning about stuff (laughs) <laughs> and and so my material has to acknowledge that my diversity isn't always present. You know, I don't wear rainbow clothes every minute of the day. And I was going to say something really, really graphically sexually inappropriate then. I don't talk about being with women all the time in my sets. But mm-hmm. having diversity on a lineup just shows that variety of those experiences. Um, I did a gig, Elliot McLaren ran a gig at Ding Dong about a month ago and he curated the lineup and there were six of us who were part of the LGBTQ rainbow. And it was awesome because you can have me talking about bisexuality followed by James Hillary talking about bisexuality. And yeah, we both refer to Catholicism, but they're just completely different experiences. And so I think the more people that you have from those different backgrounds, the more you see that we're just not this one homogenized blob. Um, Yeah, and it's the same with women. We're not all just sort of horny, sex awkward (laughs) weirdos. No, that's the men. (laughs) It is the men. Yes, you're so right. which is a problem in itself. Mm. Um, But yeah, regarding safety, I think there are really clear mechanisms for the Guild. Um, And yeah, I have had a couple of incidences that have happened and I have felt comfortable talking to the booker, not necessarily in the immediate uh, moment, but in retrospect. Um. And I think, yeah, when it comes to any sort of sexual misconduct or inappropriateness, bookers know what they're doing and know how to handle it, and the guild do as well, where I think there are gray areas and that it really needs defining is within any issues to do with race. Because Mm. 
there is so much going on, especially on the on the back of the hooey at the classic last week and the conversations that led up to that around representation and racism and barriers to access. And I think not everybody's on the same page about what conflict within race can be and what that can look mm-hmm. like. Um, and just not having it pushed aside as being women having a fallout if there's a conflict or yeah. men have it, you know, it's, it's deeper than that and more complex than that. And it needs, it needs approaching like that. And I think if the guild can approach matters to do with race in that way, in that professional way, then bookers should be too. I think mm. your, I think your point on the guild's really, really good. Uh, my personal feeling on the guild is I think it's got all the greatest intentions. I just don't think it can cover the landscape of what it needs to cover at the moment. I sometimes feel that open mic gigs kind of fall in the gap. I think it's very got a good thing around pay and pay structure for pros and this and etiquette at gigs and all that sort of stuff. But I. Uh, I personally know of instances where they just haven't been able to get to stuff quick enough and then stuff rolls on. And then what comes into it is that people hear about it and then there's this rumour mill rolls and people have been dragged along and, you know, the whole Chinese whispers thing starts happening. And Yeah, and that's what's really concerning is that we as a community, I can't believe it's only been five months since I got back because it feels like we've been on this huge roller coaster it feels like we've all been through a few really traumatic things and it feels like we are struggling and we need some sort of unity and cohesion and support that I think the guild can offer individuals but not us as a collective and yeah I was going to reference this later on but I'm I'm planning on running for a seat in the guild AGM in July at the end of July because I feel like w- like you say we are falling through that gap and if people want to rise the ranks into pro gigs or different opportunities they need to they need to not fall through the cl- the cracks and feel exhausted or demoralized or not seen or not protected um and yeah I re- like I really want to see the gig sorry I really want to see the guild expanding its representation so what what kind of role are you thinking of running for because just speaking from my own experience or of unions and i mean i work for a union now in here in new zealand my own experience is that we generally have specific representative seats for on on committees and stuff for people who are otherwise underrepresented or may need extra support for whatever reasons because of barriers so um it might be low paid people specifically it might be women might be lgbt disabled um pacifica do you think the the guild should be looking at something like that and also what kind of role are you thinking of running for i am putting my name forward because people from diverse backgrounds have to put their names forward um i want to see a huge variety of people running for guild positions if they've got the time because yeah, there might only be a couple of seats that are open in those open seat positions um, or women's rep. But the only way the Guild will become more representative is if people put themselves forward. And 
yeah, what I want to see is that the structures involved in the guild expand. So having an LGBTQI rep, having a, a disability rep on there, talking about accessibility and different barriers. Um, and the same for a POC and, of course, a, a Maori and a Pacifica rep. Um, I'm kind of surprised they don't have that already mm. coming from union background. It would just be a given that, you know, I worked with, we had a, a trans rep and, and an LGBTQI rep and a non-binary rep and a woman's rep and a POC from all different backgrounds, you know, and that was just the norm. So, yeah, it's just kind of bringing it in line with what would happen overseas, I think. And cool. yeah, there are a few things that I, just starting with that representation, expanding the the guild's board to reflect that, I think would be really key. And it means more hands on deck as well. You know, I worked two years full time in a, in a union where I was dealing with disciplinary procedures or harassment complaints or discrimination um and again I my background it, here in New Zealand I work as an assessor and a funding writer and I've got a lot of different experiences that could help I think join some dots in the community um at the Hui, for example I mentioned that uh, just my insight with speech and drama there is an Auckland school speech competition and within that you've got four categories you've got speech flash talk rap and spoken word it seems like a really positive step to suggest that we have comedy as a fifth criteria and that students are able to do three or four minutes of a set that a speech and drama teacher would help to to create and that would then help to inspire and also to connect the younger generations diverse generations hopefully with the comedy industry um so yeah, I'm in talks at the moment with the head of that that school's festival and also with the trust to try and implement that. Um, so yeah, there are a few different strategies that I want to put forward. Um, yeah, a big one though is around, is around representation and oh, representation on stage that can get really problematic. I've seen too many gigs lately that have shown racist homophobic or misogynist language that have not been challenged that it's almost like bookers or mcs think it's okay to just shrug their shoulders and say oh well they didn't get a laugh so they'll learn their lesson um mm. like it's not good enough if you if you actually speak to those audience members that there was i i took a really good friend of mine and the guy was on stage making really racist comments about his Indian wife. And my, my poor friend just turned to me after the gig and said that that was so heartbreakingly racist. And I said, I know. And he said, well, what will be done about it? And I sort of said nothing and it's not good enough. Um, yeah. And, and that comes back to training. That's what we were talking about earlier is having not just bookers, but the technicians trained and empowered to be able to just dip that mic off the back of something that is quite clearly ableist or racist or homophobic or sexist. I um, think that's your, yeah, I think your point around the guild and stuff and the, the lack of resource to do stuff, you know, I think 
all of us probably know of incidents that have probably gone to the guild because you're a small community and someone says something and it eventually gets round. But unfortunately, while they're not able to tackle it or it's being going through a process, which is generally a slow one, people are still able to perform or still able to be active creates an enormous amount of uneasiness in the place. And and whether someone's guilty, not guilty, the fact is that the names of the people are being utilised as kind of discussion fodder for the wider community really kind of really hurts the two people inadvertently as well. Um, Just because they cannot deal with the amount of different moving parts that are going on within a developing community at the moment. Yeah. I think certainly with formal complaints or formal disciplinary issues, um, the Guild definitely could do with some further support and funding, I think, from Creative New Zealand to just acknowledge there's there's a big problem. But when I, I I mean sort of smaller issues to do with just somebody having a microphone and saying something that was maybe acceptable five or 10 years ago, but the world has woken up, you know, it's woken up. And for an Auckland comedy club to still be sleepy is just not good enough. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That probably sounds really revolutionary, but it shouldn't be. It should be that nobody leaves a gig feeling like they just had someone be racist towards them. Um, or, you know, a woman in the audience. I was on a lineup a few months ago where I, um, I mean, I haven't done many gigs for ages now, but uh, it's been too busy, but I was on a gig, a, a lineup a few months ago, and it, the act before me did say something that was racist, basically. And I did, I was really tempted when I went on to like make a reference to it, like yeah. trying to make a joke out of them rather than, you know, yeah. it said and kind of criticize it in a way. But, you know, then I went back to what we were told at kind of the comedy school and what other people have said since, which is, you know, you never criticise another act. And it's like, especially as a new comic, it's like, how do you call out that kind of thing? And I don't think it should be down to the new comic to do that, to have to come up with a witty one-liner as they're waiting in the wings or, you know, green room. It's the MC and Mm. it's the the organiser, whether it's the booker or the venue owner, to have a really clear process. I had a friend talking about a a venue in America and they would utilize some sort of masking that would, if someone was crossing one of those hate speech lines, you know, we're talking about laws here. We're not just talking about someone got offended. It's it's bigger than that. Um, They would just have some sort of mask that they had to wear for the rest of their set or I don't know, you know, I don't have all the answers, mm. but I what I do really strongly feel is that we are past the point now where it's acceptable. Um, I was a, I was emceeing a gig, in fact, one of my first MC spots, and a guy was openly racist towards the only Asian female in the room. Um, on the back of the the murders, the atrocities in in America. Wow. This, this was the week of. And not only had he made wow. really, really horrifically offensive jokes about that, a week later, he then played on that poor one solo female Asian woman in the room, apart from myself, you know, backstage. Um, and that when I confronted this individual about it, 
he just didn't take it even slightly seriously. He mm. just sort of shrugged it off and said, I was doing crowd work, whatever. Um, and it was only when I said, is this a matter for the Guild? That he sort of looked and thought, oh, yeah, maybe you've got a point and sort of backtracked. Um, but, you mm. know, it shouldn't be down to an MC to put the fear of God in someone and threaten the Guild. It should be individuals knowing that mm. doing that joke, it, A, it's a shit joke. It's so cheap and and crass but b it's it's really got the potential to make someone damaged you know and she she walked out of the gig and i apologized again and she seemed really crushed if, if you could look at someone and think they're never going to go to stand up again that that yeah. would have been her you know yeah uh, it's a thing people need to learn right um that you know it's not just about actually not being a dick and not reinforcing, um, you know, problems of society. It's also about not fucking destroying the market for what we're trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you don't yeah. care about anything else, just it's a business. People to come to gigs. <laughs> sure, that's so so true. Maybe that's a way to to get people to change their perspective a little bit. An MC and a comedian works for two people. Well, three actually. They work for the audience. They work for the venue, but they actually all work for the the promoter who's actually given them a spot and give them a chance to showcase their craft and their artwork. And if their payback is to be a wanker, then, yeah, people maybe, you know, I hate cancelling and I hate wokeness and everything like that, but you may be just the only way to teach this is to just put a block on certain people and just go until you can mm. be a decent member of a society and you actually want to bring art and craft instead of wanting to bring deliberate controversy. And don't get me wrong, yeah. I like to push boundaries and I like to push buttons as much as I can, but not with the intent of going out to actually harm someone mentally or, or, or you know, in any way, shape or form. Um, and, and that's the problem is people actually, sometimes comedians go up there, think they've got a God-given right to say what they want, which they have to a degree, but just remember who put you there and why you're there and what you're meant to be doing. I completely agree. I think what we do, we are so privileged to be able to get stage time to present our thoughts and our comedy to a room full of people. And that privilege isn't a God-given right. You know, it should be earned. It should be worked towards, whether it's uh, a group of people who just review, you know, the the completely fresh comedians who've never done a gig before review it and say oh yo like that that's seriously racist do you yeah. really think that that's appropriate and then just having a dialogue with them about it and if they don't want to change then okay do you want your brand associated with that yeah. um and then it's down to the booker and if they do want their brand associated with that then well then we move to something bigger yeah yeah because yeah. there are, there will be some bookers where people go, well, if that's what you want to be associated with, then I don't want exactly. my work associated with that. So I just won't do any of your gigs anymore. But I've yeah. got one, one last question. I don't know if Matt's got any more about this, sort of about the community and safety. And this was the one that probably stuck out to me more because, you know, not trying to give away the magic of our podcast, but we obviously do a lot of preparation with guests and you've done the most amazing preparation for the interview. Uh, probably the most that we've ever seen. But there was one question in particular that stood out to me 
which I'd like to read the question out, read the very first part of your answer and then let you just like cover it off because it was the one that really stood out to me. And the question was, did you or new people coming into comedy feel that it is easy to know where to turn or are aware of the various initiatives to help people in a potential vulnerable position? And the first part of your answer was no, 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 and no, which I thought was like, holy shit. Um, are you able to just, you know, just a short little extension onto your feeling on that question? I mean, as a writer, I'm a little ashamed of the repetition. Um, <laughs> too many knows if, if I have my editorial scriptwriter hat on. I, yeah, I still feel like it's a bit of a wilderness and I appreciate it's because the Guild and people working towards the Guild have had so much on their plates. Um, but I think it's been, it's been about six months since I first asked about a, a female group, an online forum for comics like myself to seek advice or uh, help. And then I found Funny Birds, which is a women and non-binary group on Facebook. But it felt like, it felt like going on a, on an adventure in order to get there and not a good adventure I'm trying to think of an analogy you know Indiana Jones or someone I it was so much effort to just find a Facebook group funny birds it's a great name but let's find a an Auckland comedy community women and non-binary group when you just type it in the search engine you know um I I just feel like we are all sort of solo individual comics and the only way you feel comfortable and safe if you are from a diverse background is by finding other people like yourself that's that's one thing that I really want to say I think there is a natural instinct that pits people who are similar against each other so if you have lots of women on a lineup they're competing if you have LGBTQI people, they're in competition. For me, I don't know if it's a 30s thing, but I I see everybody as a contemporary and someone that if they're succeeding, I'm succeeding. If the Honey Trap gig is succeeding, I'm succeeding. Does that make sense? Because the more variety and diversity we get, the more we are going to have the strength to go to funding bodies like Creative New Zealand and say, we're really important. We've made such an impact inside of COVID on the community. When arts organizations were shut down, when theater couldn't perform, we were doing comedy, whether it was on Zoom or, or gigs, you know, opening up gigs. We were the, one of the first art forms to appear again. And that's really powerful. Um, and I think, yeah, just, just increasing that collective action is really key. We've had a, this has been a long discussion, but a really good one. It um, has indeed. You've talked a lot about diversity and women in comedy and, you know, um, supporting new comics and things like that. And I just wondered, Jess, whether you had anything planned where you're going to put your money where your mouth is and actually organise some gigs <laughs> yourself. Yes, <laughs> I am doing, hopefully setting up a gig with a couple of contemporaries where we uh, create a gig purely for diverse people. So the premise is it's out the box comedy. We are going to be showcasing people who 
don't tick stereotypical boxes um, and don't confine themselves to what people presume would be their their comedy or their stereotype. Um, and yeah, I just really want to make sure that it's an open mic gig that actually pays people. I, I really feel like there's mm. a bottleneck in Auckland and yes, I will pay people out of my own pocket. I value art and creativity enough that if a gig isn't breaking even, then those people on the line will still be getting paid. Um, whether that's in line with guild rights or not, that's another discussion. But I feel like a token $50 every now and again would go a really long way to, to saying, you've created art. I value your art. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, and the times that's happened to me, it's made me want to keep going. So I just want to see more open micers acknowledged and to do that the first thing to do is out the box comedy so yeah you can check it out on facebook um and instagram in the next few weeks i've got some time off work so i'll be focusing on organizing that gig um awesome and we'll make sure we promote it on our facebook when you do yeah elsewhere that we can because that sounds really good and i know certainly it was something that was really important to me and darren when we produced our gig was Yeah, I think that's really key. Ultimately, unless it's your first gig, you've written something, you've rehearsed it, you've performed it, you've edited it, you know, you've worked on it for a considerable amount of time. And if you're on a lineup with someone like Nick Rado, you should be deemed worthy, Mm. you know, and that that is in the act of being paid. I come from the union movement and the arts movement i'm always going to think that you should be paid for your art so that's where i'm at really yeah and is there anything else that you'd like to promote or push or any gigs that you're on in the next couple of weeks what am i on i i am super sick i apologize for being so congested in this interview (laughs) but yeah i've actually had to pull back from a couple because i've had this disgusting cold but I will be doing make your noise on I think it's the 29th of July and I might have another raw heat I'm in the raw quest this year you never know I might have to have surgery on my bowels again but um was that a joke wasn't it a joke we'll never know Uh, that's right (laughs) (laughs) it's not funny um yeah so I might have another raw heat we'll see and I'm just going to try and keep gigging. Cool. And with this uh, Make Your Noise, is that are you going to be bringing in any of your kind of musical ability as well into that? Or is it ah, comedy? Well, Matt, my musical abilities still rest in me doing about three major chord progressions, um, <laughs> which my dad always said was, was awful. So I need <laughs> to improve. And then I might try to do some comedy. Uh, but... Yeah, I also wrote a spoken word piece just in case uh, I feel like really political that night. I might mix it up a little bit. Um, But on the whole, yeah, I'll be doing my comedy sets and working on my guitar stuff as well. Awesome. Okay, well, um, thanks so much, Jess, for coming on. It's been really interesting. You're um, very welcome. Thank you very much for having me both.